Well, I hope you have your Bibles open to uh, James chapter 5 as we continue in our study of this uh, letter of In God's Word. She's considered one of the greatest athletes of the 20th century. Her name is Florence Chadwick. She is a long-distance open water swimmer. Now, you might not be familiar with long-distance open water swimming, but we're talking about like swimming between countries, okay? She swam uh, the, the English Channel several times between France and England. She, she swam through the Straits of uh, Gibraltar. She uh, is best known, though, for a unsuccessful swim that she attempted in the 1950s. Her intention was to swim from the coast of Southern California through the ocean out to uh, the island uh, Catalina, a 26-mile uh, swim. And she didn't complete it. About 15 hours into swimming with rowboats on either side, keeping an eye out for sharks, Chadwick noticed that fog began to settle in where she was swimming and she could no longer see the island. She couldn't see the shoreline and eventually she just got disoriented, she got discouraged, she started to feel weak, she started to feel tired, she thought she was too far from shore to make it so she climbed into one of those rowboats only to discover that after swimming 25 miles she was less than one mile away from from shore. This is what she said. She said, all I could see was fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Two months later, Chadwick attempted to make the same swim. The fog came back, but she had disciplined herself in her training, not just physical discipline, but mental discipline, to have in her mind the image of the shore as she took every stroke through the water. And she made it, and she smashed the record for that swim, which had previously been held by a man. And this is, this is a, a wonderful example of focusing on the finish. Today's a message is titled this, Wisdom About Eternity. Wisdom About Eternity. If we are going to live with wisdom in this life, we need to focus on the shore. We can't let the fog of this world prevent us from seeing clearly what lies in front of us in terms of eternity. So if we want to live lives of faithfulness, we must focus on the finish. If we want to live lives of faithfulness, we must focus on the finish. James begins here by addressing a group of people who are not focused on the finish. They're focused on finances. He begins by saying, come now, you rich. He says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Weep and howl for these miseries that are, that are coming upon you in the future. You, you can't see the shore, the fog of affluence, the fog of the culture and the world that you're living in is preventing you from seeing things clearly. And so we're really going to look at two groups of people here today. Our message has two points. Here's the, here's the first one, that when we focus on eternity, we gain perspective on true wealth. 
When we focus on eternity, we gain perspective on what is truly valuable, on what true wealth, true riches actually is. Now, James begins here by addressing this group of people that he calls the rich. Now, we need to identify who is he speaking to here? Who is he saying would, would be anticipating things like the, the miseries and who should be weeping and howling? Is he talking about Christian wealthy people, the kind of Christian wealthy people that he spoke about in chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, when he said that the, the wealthy brothers should, should rejoice in their humiliation? because all that they have is going to fade away? Is he talking about the rich Christian described in James chapter 2 when, when James was talking about partiality, how a wealthy Christian comes to church and then an unwealthy Christian comes to church and why do we treat those two people differently? No, that's, that's not who James is talking about. Every time James is talking to Christians, he's continually calling them brothers. Let me show you what I mean. I'll just put a couple of examples here on the screen for you. I won't be able to read them all out, but he's always referring to them as brothers, as brothers, as brothers. But now in this instance, he just says, come now, you rich. And if you look down at verse 7, after, he speak, he's, after he's finished speaking to this group, he says, be patient, therefore, brothers. So he's talking to this one group he identifies as the rich, but then he says, now therefore, and now that I've finished speaking to them, now I want to talk to you as brothers and sisters who are part of the family of God. He's contrasting these wealthy unbelievers with the way Christians ought to live. So James here is speaking to the unbelieving rich in his day. But why would he be addressing non-Christian rich people in a letter that he wrote to a bunch of Christians. Like, how are the non-Christian rich people ever going to even read what James is saying? Well, remember when you're reading through your Old Testament and you get to some parts in like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Amos and you have these oracles about Babylon or about Syria or Tyre or Egypt. You have all of these statements that are made, but the letters, the, 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 the Old Testament books were written for to be read by the Jewish people, and, and yet they, you have all of these indictments, you have all of these, all of these prophecies made about these other nations. Well, that's kind of what's happening here in the book of James. James is, is allowing the Christians to kind of eavesdrop on what God wants to say to this group of rich unbelievers. He wants them to eavesdrop on this conversation because he doesn't want them to envy unbelievers. He doesn't want them to imitate these unbelievers. He doesn't want them to be afraid of these unbelievers. And he knows that there are wealthy Christians who will be reading this letter, just like so many of us. I mean, just by the fact that we live in North America means that we're wealthier than the rest of the so, so many uh, people in our world. That we should be listening in, that we should hear this warning not to allow the fog... Of, of riches and wealth and affluence to prevent us from seeing the shore, to prevent us from seeing eternity. So in James' words here to, uh, to the unbelieving rich, he really challenges us to think about wealth. He challenges us in three ways. Here's the first one. Here's the first question we got to ask ourselves. How do I view wealth? 
How do I view wealth? Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, your riches are rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. You see, the unbelieving rich have, a, have this deluded sense of permanence when it comes to their possessions. And James says, no, your, your fancy clothes, he says, they, they're moth-eaten. He doesn't say they will be moth-eaten. He says they are moth-eaten. He says your silver and gold are corroded. Silver and gold can't corrode. But he's, he's speaking in the present tense because he's so sure about what is going to happen in the future. James' gaze is so fixed on the shoreline of eternity that he can look at all of the wealth and the success and the opulence and the extravagance and the fancy clothes and all of the investments of the wealthy and to say, I can see the shore and all of that is rusted and corroded and moth-eaten and destroyed in the end. He's challenging them because they're not, they don't have a proper view of wealth. A proper view of wealth is that it's, it's a tool that God has given to us temporarily to use for his glory. And the people that James is addressing here just simply didn't get that. He says that you have laid up treasures. He's talking about moths. Does this sound familiar? Right? I say this every week. James, all he's really doing is just, he's just, it's just a written Bible study on the Sermon on the Mount. And so he's just, he's really just referring to what his, his older half-brother said in Matthew 6, 19 and 20. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, there it is, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Do you see that? You look at Matthew 6 on the screen, you look at James uh, chapter 5, do you see that James is really just teaching on the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount? But James says here that we've laid up treasures or these people have laid up treasures in the last days. Did James just sort of get his eschatology wrong? Was he just looking at the, at the wrong chart? How could he say the last, I mean, this is 2,000 years later and, and, and we're still waiting for the last days, aren't we? Well, if you read the New Testament closely, you look at Acts chapter 2, verse 17, you look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, and countless other places that the, basically since the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, that began the last days. We're in the final chapter of God's unfolding plan. So if someone asks you, hey, do you think you're in the last, you think we're in the last days? And then you say, absolutely I do. We've been in the last days for, for 2,000 years, my friend. So how do I view wealth? Do I do I assume, like the rest of our society, do I assume that it's just going to be here forever? Or am I focused on eternity? Here's the second one. How do I acquire wealth? How do I acquire wealth? Look at how these wealthy people continue to increase their wealth. Verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That they got wealthy, 
by fraud. They got wealthy by promising to pay their workers. And then when they get all of the profits, keeping the profits for themselves and not giving the the laborers what was due to them. They were practicing fraud. They were not following through on their promises. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 14, God commands, You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. And James here is saying, these these laborers, they have cried to the Lord. And God is listening. Remember, James is writing this so that the Christians can sort of eavesdrop on what God is saying to the rich. And this can be comforting, especially for those poor Christians who were the laborers, who were being oppressed, because they could know that God is listening to their cries. And notice how he's referred to, he's the Lord of hosts, the God of all armies, the one who is large and in charge, the one who will come and make everything right. So we have to ask ourselves, how do we acquire wealth? Are we looking for a quick way to get rich? Are we looking for a way to cut the corners or to, or to not pay this person or that person what they are entitled to so that we can keep more for ourselves? Is there any dishonesty in our financial dealings? Is there any dishonesty in how we handle our taxes? Is there any dishonesty when we, you know, Lord willing, travel to other countries and make declarations about what we're bringing back with us? Is there any dishonesty about about what our region knows or understands about our our property or our building or, or anything that we own? Any dishonesty about how we insure our vehicles or anything like this? This is not how God wants us to handle our wealth. So we've got to ask ourselves, how do I view wealth to make sure that we don't think it's permanent? And then How do I acquire wealth to make sure that we're not doing anything deceitful or wrong in order to get it? And then the last one is, how do I use wealth? How do I use the wealth that God has given me? Look at verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So these, this group of people that James is addressing, they have spent all of their wealth on themselves, all of it for the purpose of luxury and self-indulgence. This is not God's intention for how we are to use wealth. We aren't just supposed to spend it on ourselves, but invest it in doing good to others. That's what God desires us to do. And he says that, you've, that these people have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. James here is just using the analogy of an animal that's, that's about to be slaughtered for food. You think about it, if you go down Winston Churchill and just head north out into Brampton, the first thing you'll see on your right is Maple Lodge Farm, right? Truckload after truckload of chickens. And those chickens think they've got it made. Their whole life, they've had shelter, they've had more food than they've ever wanted, probably more food than they do want. They think they got it made. They don't have a care in the world. They're not thinking 
about what is coming next. And loved ones, listen, money and wealth can have that effect on us. We can just go through life, I've got shelter, I've got, I've got it made. And we don't realize what is coming on the shore. We're not living or focused on eternity. You know, long before COVID-19 was a thing, going all the way back to the 1950s, it was Fred Whitman, a wealthy man in San Francisco, who originally coined the term of a massive pandemic in our culture that he called affluenza. That we are so affluent that we have this illness, this affluenza. We can't see our world clearly. We can't see the future clearly. We can't see eternity clearly because we're so distracted by all of this stuff. It's a sickness. We're just not thinking. That's what James is warning these wealthy people about. And then it gets, it gets really dark in verse 6. He says, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Again, these wealthy people were powerful. They could have influence on the courts and court decisions. If anyone tried to accuse them of wrongdoing or of the fraud that they were committing, they, they could have these people put to death. Why? Killing another person so that they could go on living the way that they want to live. It gets really dark really fast. But here's the truth. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 24, he says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. God is not particularly concerned whether or not you have money, but he is very concerned about whether or not you serve money or worship money. If God is your God, then money is your tool. But if, if, if money is your God, then you'll end up doing things like verse 6. That, that's the extreme example. People being put to death so that you can go on living your lifestyle. But it means that because money is your God, it doesn't matter about being honest or telling the truth or having integrity because that's what God cares about. But if money is your God, you just do whatever you need to do to get more money. The almighty dollar. Worshipping money. And then rather than having God satisfy you, the gospel satisfy you, the word of God and fellowship and worship satisfy you, you're continually going to money to try to satisfy you, which never does, and so you continue to accumulate more things that will be moth-eaten and corroded. Only God can satisfy. Listen, we live in a world where so many people are worshiping the God of money and it's leading to so much dissatisfaction and destruction in our world. And the way that we sin with money is just one of the various ways that human beings sin against one another. And Jesus came, 2 Corinthians 9 says that Jesus came who was rich. He became poor so that we could inherit spiritual Riches. He came and suffered and died on the cross for us. And if you're here today and you've been chasing the God of money, you can turn from that, turn to the true God, confess your sin, and believe in 
Jesus and commit to following him. He's a far better God than money is. And he will satisfy you like money never can. So James now turns his attention, focusing on this theme of eternity. He turns his attention to the believers, to those who have made that decision, to those who have said, I'm not going to be trying to be satisfied with money or with wealth. I'm not going to let finances be my God. I'm going to let the Lord Jesus be the Lord of my life. So he turns to them now in verse 7. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Notice three times there, twice in verse 7, once in verse 8, he, he uses the word patient. He he's, uses the word patience again in verse 10. He uses the word steadfast twice in verse 11. What he's calling the believers to, he's telling them, get your eyes on the shore. Focus on forever. Focus on eternity. And here's what will happen. We not only gain perspective about true wealth, but we also grow in patience in the midst of our suffering. We grow in patience in the midst of our suffering. That's what happens when we focus on eternity. James here is going to use three illustrations of patience. I just read to you the verses about the farmer. Here's the, here's the first illustration. Here's what we can learn from the farmer. Trust God with what you can't control. Trust God with what you can't control. If you want to be a farmer, you have to have patience. Like the only thing that grows overnight is dandelions. Have you ever noticed that? You, 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 you work on your lawn in the afternoon, you go to bed, you wake up, there's all, that's the only crop that grows overnight, but no one wants it. If you want anything worth eating, it's going to take Time. You can't grow, I know a lot of us, you know, we got tomatoes, tomato plants maybe this high right now in our garden. It's going to take time, right? You, can't, it's, you need patience. You need, if you want to grow beans, if you want to grow carrot, whatever you're trying to grow, it's not going to happen overnight. Farming is inherently linked with the discipline of patience. He says that the, the farmer must be patient. He, he waits for the precious fruit of the earth. And it says, until it receives the early and the late rains. Here's the thing about precipitation. You can't schedule it into the calendar. You can't say, well, I'm going to plant my seeds here and then I'm going to have it rain on Tuesday and then a day off on Wednesday. It's going to rain again on Thursday. You can't schedule rain. You have to trust God with what you can't control. Now, don't, don't mishear me here, okay? When James is talking about patience, being patient is not the same as being passive. Because I, I work with some former farmers, okay? Pastor Chris grew up on a farm. That guy knows how to work, okay? The dawn till the sometimes I have to tell that guy to stop working. So being a farmer, being patient, doesn't mean that you just twiddle your thumbs and say, I hope. No, you're weeding the soil. You're tilling the soil. You're preparing the soil. You're planting the seed. You're doing everything in your power 
but trusting God to do what only he can do. I was talking to a friend this week about a lesson that I learned a couple of years ago where you, just, you take a piece of paper and you put a column down the middle and you write what Ted can do on one column and you write what God can do on the other column. And you, you think, so here's my situation, here's the circumstances I'm facing, here's what I'm struggling with, here's what I can do in the midst of this trial, in the midst of this struggle, but here is what only God can do. That's what, being a, that's what the, the illustration of the farmer teaches us. He says in verse 8, establish your hearts. Get your heart in the right place. Remember in Matthew 6, we've already been there a couple of times. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Get your hearts in the right place. What is happening in your heart will be the only thing that matters when you get to shore. When we get to eternity, all that will matter is the state of our soul, the inner person. James says, establish your heart. He says, the coming of the Lord is at hand. He's got them focused on eternity. For the rich, it was all about judgment. He said, weep and, and, weep and, and wail because judgment is coming. And here, he tells the Christians, he says, be patient, establish your hearts. The Lord is coming. And he says in verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. You know, one of the things that I find so often is that when I'm struggling about something in, you know, whether it, be the, whether it be church or whether it be something I'm frustrated with that's happening in our culture, do you know who bears the brunt of that? It's my family. My family has nothing to do with the situation, but I find I'm always taking it out on them somehow. I'm irritable about some, some other situation, and yet I'm, I'm letting that irritability play out in how I interact with my kids or how I interact with Lindsay. That's so wrong. And what James here is saying, listen, we're all going through hardship but don't take it out on your family. Don't take it out on your immediate family and also on your church family. Don't grumble against one another. We're supposed to be in this together. So don't grumble. And he says the judge is standing at the door. He said the, the Lord is near and he's, he's right at the door. He's at the threshold. He's about to come in. And we don't want him to come in while we're busy arguing with one, grumbling about small, petty things. We've got to have our hearts established. He's at the door. Then he gets into his second uh, illustration. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Here's the second illustration, the prophets. And the prophets tell us to speak up for what's true. Remember, hear me, being patient is not the same as being passive. There are actions that can be take, that, that we can take. We can still be working while we are waiting on the Lord. So we, like the prophets, we can bring God's word into whatever situation. We can stand up for truth in defense of ourselves or in defense of the vulnerable. We can speak that which is true, but remember, it's going to come at a cost. 
Because you read about these prophets. You read about what, was ha- what, what happened in Jeremiah's life. You read about, about things that, that, that took place in his life as he stood for truth and stood alone. It comes at a cost. But Jeremiah was faithful in standing up for what was right. He suffered, but he never stopped. And that's what we're called to do as well. Even as things get worse and worse in our culture, in our world, we are called upon to stand up and to speak for what is true, no matter what the cost. Verse 11, he says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. He tells them, listen, look back in history. So often, sometimes we think that in our world, we, you know, right now we have it worse than ever, than anyone ever had. <laughs> no, listen, read your Bible. Read church history. And, and un- get a sense of the big picture. Follow these examples of men and women who remained steadfast, even when it got foggy, even when it was hard and difficult to see the shore. These people who remained steadfast. They're blessed, those who remain steadfast. Does that sound familiar? I mean, James is closing off his book the same way he began. James 1 verse 12, he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. He repeats that almost word for word in chapter 5 verse 11. Blessed are those who remain steadfast. Then he goes to the third illustration. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord. Here's the third and final illustration. Trust in God's purpose. Trust in God's purpose. Now, if you you don't believe that God wants any of his people to to be wealthy, um, then you're going to have a hard time with the book of Job because Job was a very, very wealthy man. And we we know that James, in the way that he wrote this letter, he's not anti-wealth. He's anti-worship of wealth. And he uses here the example of Job, a very wealthy man, a very faithful man. And those two things are not opposites. You can be wealthy and you can be faithful. And then Job had everything taken away from him. So much to the point where his wife advises him towards suicide. She says, curse God and die. That's how bad it was. And yet Job remained steadfast. And and reading the book of Job requires some steadfastness. And sometimes we think, wow, 42 chapters is a long book, a lot of long, confusing speeches. But then we need to sort of reorient, like, okay, I'm complaining I have to read this long book. Job lived through this. Not only was he going through all of, these, all of these struggles, he also had these bonehead, well-intentioned friends preaching at him all the time. Really, they were preaching at him a prosperity gospel that if God was really for him, that he would still be, he would have all of his wealth and, every, and nothing would go wrong in his life. So Job is not only going through all of the anguish of everything that he lost, everything that was happening to him physically, but also with these misguided Bible interpreters that were continually coming at him and accusing him. But Job understood something about purpose. Job, in all the confusion and trying to read through the book of Job and make sense of what everyone's saying and even make sense of what Job is saying, there's a couple of moments of precious clarity in that book. 
particularly in chapter 19, verse 25, where, where Job says this, he says, for I know that my redeemer lives and at the last, again, he's focused on the finish, at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold. Job was focused on eternity. Job was focused on the end. I love what he says in, in Job 23, verse 10. He says, but he knows the way that I take. You're all trying to tell me what's going on with my life. I can't figure out what's going on with my life, but God knows. There's someone who has a plan. And if I knew what he knew, I would want what he's giving me. He knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. Job knew the value of true wealth because he had an eternal perspective. True wealth was what was happening in his own heart, in his own life. Going back to James 5, 11, it talks about the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. That word purpose is the Greek word teleos, which we've mentioned a number of times in the book of James. Sometimes it's, it's, it's translated mature. Sometimes it's translated complete, that God has it. It's, it's, there's an end in mind. There's a purpose. There's a plan. There's a maturity that God is doing. God has a purpose. And then James finishes this brilliant paragraph here by saying, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. And here's, what, here's fundamentally what we need to hear. That when we're focusing on eternity, when we're looking through the fog and picturing the shore, loved ones, our goal is not just a place. Our goal is not just a place where we, you know, escape the suffering that we're experiencing right now. It's not just a place where we will live eternally. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. To have an eternal focus is to have a focus on God. Because on the shore, our Father is standing there. And he, look how he's described here. He's compassionate and merciful. The literal translation of compassionate is many-boweled, right? That's the, <laughs> it doesn't sound so sentimental in our language, but sort of in a, in a Hebrew and a, a, even a Greek culture, the, the bowels, that was the place where you felt things, and God is described as many-bowled, that he feels more than we feel. And that he is merciful, that he doesn't treat us the way that we deserve. Even when we follow and wander from here to there to chase worldly pursuits, he is merciful to us. So when we focus on the finish, when we focus on eternity, we're not merely focused on a place or a period of time. We're focused on a person, our God, 
who loves and forgives, who lifts us up when we fall, who puts us together when we're broken, who heals our wounds and who wipes away our tears. Loved ones, keep your eyes on the shore. Keep your eyes on the Lord. Get a right perspective about wealth in this world and gain patience and strength and grace when we experience suffering here. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word. We thank you for your character. We thank you that you are a God who is compassionate and merciful. Lord, I pray that we would live the way that James tells us to live. Live knowing that you are at hand, that you are at the door, that you are coming soon. So Lord, we pray as James has promised, we pray that as we draw near to you, Lord, that you would draw near to us and that we would know your compassion and know your mercy and know how to live rightly in this world for your glory. Lord, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.